This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education X. Thank you for joining us. Learning at America's public schools has been in decline since even before the beginnings of the COVID pandemic. The decline has accelerated ever since. But in some ways, America's schools are better off than ever before. Money's been pouring into public school coffers from all sides, from rising property values, rising revenues from state income and capital gains taxes, and money from federal aid to the states to offset challenges posed by COVID. So if money makes a difference, schools should quickly recover from the troubles that they have been enduring in the recent past. Can we really count on that? Well, to discuss this issue, I have with me today on the Education Exchange, Rocco Testani, a partner at the Atlanta law firm Eversheds Sutherland. He's the co-leader of the firm's U.S. business and commercial litigation, and he has participated in some of the most important adequacy lawsuits nationwide, which are really lawsuits about money and how much money do schools need and whether money makes a difference. So, uh, Rocco, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Well, Rocco, tell me about all of this money that's being arriving on the scene. Uh, are you optimistic that that's going to be turned into, into student achievement based on your familiarity with all these issues of school finance that get litigated in these uh, adequacy lawsuits? I'm not optimistic that that's going to be the result. Um, we have seen unprecedented, as you noted in your introduction, uh, both state dollars, local dollars, and of course the federal money that has been provided over the last couple of years, which it's so much that the school districts are, are having a difficult time spending it all and doing it in a timely way. So uh, while we're seeing this money pour in, we're now beginning to learn about the effects of of remote instruction and hybrid instruction and lack of in-person education over the last couple of years. So um, I'm, I'm not optimistic that, that these dollars are going to change uh, the direction of public education, uh, uh, certainly not across the board. Well, why is that? I mean, you would, what are the, what are the, you know, it's easy just to say they can't do anything well, but what are some of the issues that school districts face when they a lot of new money arrives on the scene and they got to figure out how to spend it huh what are the what are the challenges that they face under those conditions i think there are a couple of challenges that are um, relevant to bureaucracies generally and certainly large public schools uh, have contracting requirements and so when you are getting an influx of these federal dollars to uh, improve, for example, ventilation or to improve, otherwise improve the facilities, that's going to take a, quite a lot of time through the contracting process. In addition, when it comes to programs and staff, um, you're competing in a, a very competitive labor market right now, and, and we know that from uh, rising salaries in the, in the professions and in, in, in all walks of life, and so that is a challenge. Um, and then I think third uh, is sort of returning to the basics, what makes a difference in public education that's effective? I mean, I think one thing we learned in the pandemic is that students going to school in person was hugely important, and, um, and that uh, didn't cost more money. 
the schools got their same amount of money, whether they were in person or not, for the most part across this country, and yet we've seen the effect of that. Well, I can uh, appreciate that, but also there's inflation out there, and inflation at 8% um, can quickly eat up a lot of money, not only for individuals, a lot of the individuals are finding that when they're going to the grocery store, but this can also affect school districts, right? It, it costs more for vendors, it costs more to fix the ventilation system, to do the new construction that's uh, in demand these days, and, and also it costs more to hire uh, staff because they ex expect a salary increase if uh, their cost of living is rising. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all know that the, the ills and the, and the difficulties that inflation presents for everyone, and I think schools, of course, are not insulated from that. Uh, food as well, you know, feeding students, that's another component. But yes, I think the, the biggest hit will be is on the labor market front and how you find competent, good teachers who are committed to the profession when other uh, professions that require educational achievement, you know, advanced degrees and so forth, are commanding so much money uh, right now. Well, I know among the many issues that you litigate are some of that developed in Florida. Now, I know in the Florida situation, you were involved in an adequacy lawsuit, and it reached, a, from the point of view of the defense, a, a successful conclusion in 2019. Uh, what was the ruling in, in, in Florida in the case you were involved in? Uh, the ruling was that, that the that Florida had satisfied its obligations under the state constitution uh, to provide a high quality education. Uh, the ruling also involved questions about separation of powers and uh, what is the role of the judiciary in making decisions uh, about the quality of public education. And a uh, deference uh, was uh, adopted by the Florida Supreme Court to those questions, deference to the elected branches of government, the uh, legislature and the executive branches. And so that uh, deference standard together with very good outcomes in Florida um, over the past 20 years as a result of really going back to the reforms of, of, uh, of Governor Jeb Bush, going back to the late 90s, a program that they have followed that's focused very much on accountability. Um, and uh, progressing student achievement and sticking with things at work. Um, so that, that's the ruling that came down in 2019. So maybe I'd be a little bit unfair, but I could say you had an easy case, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 Florida was, Florida's school system has been improving more than any other state in the country. How could they say it's an inadequate system? Well, it's a, you should have been a, a star witness, uh, but it, you know, cases are easy after you win them. Uh, they're not so uh, when you're in the midst of them. But no, it, it, there was a lot of favorable, certainly, data about Florida. Um, and we certainly highlighted that. Well, so then I think uh, you probably the people in Florida thought highly of your uh, skills as a litigator, so they have asked you to take on some other cases there, such as uh, uh, how the school responded to, uh, in the schools in Florida responded to uh, the pandemic. And, and Florida is really quite unusual, at least as I read the uh, uh, the stories out there that Florida was more likely to open their doors to students to come to school early on almost more than any other state in the country. I know here in Massachusetts and even more in California and, and New York 
schools just said, we're not opening our doors. And they, they stayed closed for, for the whole 2020, 2021 20, year for, for 12 months or nine full months. Uh, and in Florida, it, the doors were open. So, so what were the uh, legal issues that arose? Yes, in the spring, of course, of 2020, uh, as everywhere else, uh, schools were closed for the, 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 the remainder of the 2019-2020 school year. Then over the summer, um, the state board and the governor uh, announced a policy that there would be, uh, schools should be open uh, for families that want their children to attend in person. And they should be open five days a week. It was voluntary, it was not forced on anyone, uh, but there was good uptake um, by parents to have their kids go to school in person. And so that was the announced policy and it was implemented. Well, who could object to that? Well, you don't have to go to school, but you can go to school. So it sounds to me like it uh, should be pretty popular policy. Uh, well, nevertheless, there were objections. Um, and there was, there was litigation filed to, uh, uh, to prevent that policy from going into place and to, to sort of retain the remote and hybrid um, learning uh, modality. Um, the legal issues in the case really had to do with the questions uh, under the Florida Constitution, uh, two provisions really, one having to do with the safe and secure language in the education article of the Florida Constitution, and the argument from the plaintiffs was that these schools were not safe to, uh, to have children in them or to have staff in them, and the second argument was that really this should be a locally made decision that school boards should make that decision locally rather than it being uh, uh, laid out in state policy. So those were the legal issues really under the Florida Constitution. And um, you know, similar to the adequacy litigation and the law that had been developed down there in that case, uh, the, the courts ultimately held that these were uh, policy decisions, that they were political decisions, that, that you know, elected officials are elected for a reason to make judgment calls like this, and that uh, the conflicting science, the conflicting um, arguments over whether it was or wasn't safe, under what conditions could you have a school open safely, um, those were subject to great debate and unsettled, certainly in the fall of 2020. Um, and so the policy was validated and upheld by the courts, and students went back to school in Florida. Well, but it's, it would seem to me that if you've got a child that has uh, got a, an immune system that's uh, at, at risk uh, you know, of being compromised by, by COVID, and the kids so, you know, can come to school and uh, nothing is done to protect so how does this, um, how did you win that case when it seems like it doesn't sound like it's a very safe place for, for um, a child? Well, uh, the, uh, you know, with a, uh, an immune system such as that, yeah. Well, the important part of the, as you pointed out, and, and is, uh, was that it was voluntary. So number one, you, if, if parents felt that it was unsafe, not just for students who might have some pre-existing conditions that would create higher risk, but in general, if you felt like this was not good or if the student, you know, could get the virus and then communicate it to the 
to the to the family, and there could be someone in the family. You know, all those kinds of issues that we've become unfortunately very familiar with over the past couple of years existed certainly in the school environment. But that is why I think the voluntary nature of going back in was so important. Uh, in terms of precautions that were taken in that first year of reopening, certainly the CDC guidance was followed in terms of, of distancing uh, within classrooms, ventilation uh, uh, provisions were made, certainly uh, hygiene and cleanliness of the, the facility, that uh, steps were taken there. In addition, in that first um, uh, year, masks were also uh, uh, worn in the schools. So steps were taken to address that. Students who, for, for whom it was too risky or the parents felt like it was the right choice for their family, they continued to have available um, uh, uh, remote educational um, opportunity. Now, uh, you know, looking back uh, on it, it seems like it was not only a legal policy or a constitutionally acceptable policy, but it looks like it was a, the right policy uh, given from what we've been learning about uh, where kids suffered the most during the pandemic. It was. It was in the in the uh, places where you could only learn online. Isn't is that your reading of the evidence? Yes, and I think we're 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 beginning to see the devastating effects of the choice to keep schools closed for an entire school year in some parts of the country, and the the work that's been done that's looked at um, state assessments and done efforts to compare those across the country. There's a very clear finding, which is that that in states and school districts that were primarily closed during the 2021 school year, that those students suffered uh, substantial learning losses compared to test scores prior to the pandemic. Um, in states like Florida that uh, opened, primary, you know, where, where it was available and where most students were going in person, uh, there was slight learning loss, um, but it was much, much less. and. Um, so here is another outcome of the policies that were pursued uh, during the COVID pandemic in schools. Well, in the uh, poll that we conducted uh, here at, uh, at our program on education policy and governance, the Education Next poll, uh, we ran an extra uh, survey in November of 2020, and, and we asked parents, it was a survey only of parents, and we asked parents uh, to tell us uh, how they felt about their child's schooling experience at that moment in time. And first of all, we found out whether their child was being taught in person or online or in some hybrid condition. And we found out that if they were in person, uh, the parents' assessment that was that there was much less learning loss, much less likelihood of, of learning loss and that the parents also identified it even more so, more so than, than the academic side was the social side, because they, they saw lots of negative impacts on uh, the social well-being and the emotional well-being and even the physical well-being of the children who suffered from, uh, from the, the closing of the schools and having to, to learn online. So that, you know, this was actually evident to parents at the moment in time. You didn't have to wait three years to find out that test scores showed a decline. Parents were telling you this right at the, at the time this was happening. Yeah, well, I think it underscores uh, the point that sometimes parents know best about their kids. 
um, I would say most times. And so this doesn't come as a great surprise, and, and nor should the, the after effects of this. What's surprising is the fact that very few people are taking account of, you know, being accountable for making that policy decision, which clearly uh, we had examples at the time, both in private schools, in charter schools, in some states like Florida, that opened and were doing it successfully, were managing it successfully, and still we saw schools remain closed um, well through the 2021 school year. Um, so, so there was this other sign to it. Was there a lot of conflict between the local school district and the and the and the state policymakers? Was this the state school board or something that made the general policy you have to you have to have the schools open? Yes. Um, so. What happened when the district said uh, we're going to close them anyhow? How, how did you, or, or did districts always go along? Well, ultimately districts went along, and I think it was a mixed bag. There were a lot of districts that certainly were in agreement with that policy and some districts that were not. Um, ultimately, part of the case involved if a district was not going to open, what were the consequences, and it would be financial. Um, and ultimately, though, I think primarily driven by the fact that it was voluntary uh, for families to come back into the schools, uh, that was accepted as the policy in the state. Well, by the time this pod- podcast is, uh, goes public, I think we will know what the results of the latest NAEP tests are going to be. Uh, this is a test that is going to be available by state. So we're going to know how well each state is going to do on uh, this uh, on the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and it's I don't know the results, uh, but my guess is we're going to see that the states that had schools open uh, are going to look very good when it comes to assessing the uh, the impact of of schooling during during the uh, during this period of time, and the states that close their doors it's going to be revealed to the the general public that things did not go well uh do you sort of think that's the case too that's my private judgment yes i mean i think that's what we're going to see i mean we we know that there's some alignment between the state assessments and and the naep and so these state assessments that have been um analyzed that have shown the learning loss have shown the differential between the in-person schooling states and those that were remote, uh, it's not even close. You know, we're talking about uh, 14-point decline in math um, in this one study that I've looked at on state assessments and in states that were in-person, that differential is only four points. So, you know, looking at pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, or in-pandemic, four-point loss in the in-person states, in the remote states, 14 points. You know, so directionally, I I don't think it's going to be a, it's not going to be close what we're going to see. And so it's, it's really more how big a difference is it really? It's not going to be a question of, of whether, but by how much. Um, so is this going to become a political issue? Um, I think it'll it'll be a political issue. I think that um, it, it will be an issue about the importance of schools, the importance of of what schools do, not just for academic and the point you made about your parent survey, the social and emotional well-being of kids, and that schools are in fact quite important um, for that. And it, and it has a double effect. It's Schools also serve to 
to take care of kids while their parents were working. So in states that uh, where children were not going back to school in person, it also affected the general economy. So there's lots of effects here from a policy to close down schools. Um, so, it, you know, I expect it will be political and maybe it should be. Well, will it become a constitutional question? Because you could argue that, okay, you've had this major learning loss. Uh, we've got to do something about it. And uh, the way to do something about it is to allocate more resources to to schools so that they can uh, up their game. So do you expect to see that kind of litigation going forward? Um, I do, <laughs> and, it, and it's, uh, it's uh, really a tragic irony when you think about the advocates who said we had to keep schools closed in the face of evidence that you could reopen safely, um, and then now claim because we've suffered learning loss as a result of that decision that we made we now must get more money to overcome the decisions we made as adults uh, about our schools in the face of evidence that you could open them safely. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, what we do know is that there have been some wild estimates thrown around about what it will take to overcome these learning losses. And needless to say, the focus is on money. I think one one uh, estimate was that it was going to cost $700 billion to overcome the learning losses. To put that in perspective, that's about what we spend in this country from local, state, and federal sources uh, for education. So we're talking about, you know, basically another $700 billion to fix the problems that were sort of self-inflicted. Well, why does money always have to be the solution to the problem of an inadequate education? My own view of this is that maybe we should give parents more latitude in choosing the school and support their decision by giving them the resources to go to the school of their choice. So is that a possible new way of uh, looking at some of these uh, lawsuits that have to do with inadequate education? Will that ever emerge as a remedy, give parents choice? Well, I think the pandemic perhaps supercharged that um, uh, perspective because you see enrollment losses left and right in the urban school districts, the ones that were primarily shut down. Uh, that's the one thing you can count on lately in looking at uh, educational trends is that the big city school systems are losing enrollment. Um, and where are these kids going? Um, I, I think that you know we're seeing certainly the charter sector is growing in urban areas. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, vouchers and, and looking at um, uh, private funding for, uh, or funding for private school education for students as a way out of, of, of schools that are not responsive to parent concerns. And, and the pandemic, I think, underscored that and maybe put an exclamation point uh, at it. And homeschooling. And homeschooling, the homeschooling has yeah. increased quite a bit. Uh, which is, or, yeah, which is. Some, sources of information that are emerging out there. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, you know, homeschooling is a little bit of a misnomer because it's, it's somewhat home, but it's also a small group instruction, uh, you know, together with, with professionals. So it's, a, it's kind of a combination of things. But I think all of that is much more on the table than it was before. It was viewed more of a, uh, as a, almost a fringe point that this choice could be the answer here. But I think the experience of the pandemic is one where you saw families saying, how do we get our kids, you know, to be able to have an education that, that is meaningful? Well, thank you, Rocco, for uh, discussing the contemporary issues of 
money and education in the post-COVID era and the likely direction that uh, we might be moving. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul, for having me. I've been speaking with Rocco Testani, an attorney at the Evershed Sutherland Law Firm based in Atlanta, Georgia. He's an attorney for the defense in multiple adequacy lawsuits and in other legal, uh, another uh, litigation uh, throughout the country. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.